I want you to journey with me in the scriptures beginning in Ephesians chapter number 3 today. So find your way to Ephesians chapter number 3 today. And um, this is the second sermon in our Supernatural series. If we had a title for this second sermon, it would be Power Source. Because there is no real power in life apart from what is supplied to us by heaven, by divine resources. Uh, That's kind of obvious in Ephesians chapter 3. The Apostle Paul, as a founder of the Ephesian church, is praying over them. He is their pastor. He is the founding pastor of their church. And this, he's writing back to them, and this is his prayer for them in Ephesians 3.14. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his Spirit, in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Let me say that again. This is the prayer of the Apostle Paul. I pray that out of His glorious riches, He may strengthen you with power through His Spirit in your inner being. Why? So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Why does the Spirit come? To make Christ more real. So that there would be power through His Spirit in your inner being. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love. May have power together with all the Lord's holy people. Now this is not a small group sermon. But he's praying that they would have power. And that power happens when they are together with the Lord's holy people. And it is only in that community of being together in the power with God's holy people. That they will have the ability to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. In a corporate setting like this or in a setting like a small group. It's in those meetings. And to know this love and that it surpasses knowledge. The whole point that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. I want you to have all of God there is to offer. That's the prayer of the pastor. And that's my prayer for you today. To me, Dallas has one of the most beautiful nighttime skylines of any city in the world. And it's probably because I live here, I'm somewhat partial. But the millions of lights in the nighttime Dallas skyline represents tens of thousands of people. I mean, look at it. There are, there are pictures that, that demonstrate it. These office windows, they just represents tens of thousands of people, of jobs, of offices, millions of dollars, and creative ideas. And those ideas, educationally, financially, politically, those ideas don't just affect those of us that live in the Metroplex. What happens in Dallas in a business sense, in a financial sense, literally impacts the rest of the world. But all of that potential can be shut down in a moment Because of a lack of power. It's called a blackout. And some of you that have been a part of them know how eerie, dark, and ominous they can be. If you've ever had the power supply shut off where in a nighttime when you're used to being in an area where the night sky is lit up by lights, you understand how eerie it can be. I mean in an instant all of that potential is gone because the city is shut off from a power supply. Haley and I lived through that. In Arkansas, we went through one of the worst ice storms that ever hit that area, and they were without power for weeks. I mean, our church was cut off from its potential. The city was cut off from its potential. Emergency responders could not reach their potential because of a blackout that lasted for weeks. We were shut off from our power source and lost most of our potential. That's exactly like life. Life with all of its struggles and circumstances, mountains to climb and battles to fight, 
Victorious living is impossible without divine assistance and supernatural strength. We can do nothing without His power flowing through our life. Someone once said that if you can explain a Christian church, if it all adds up rationally, then something is wrong because that's not how God intended His people to live. Now think about that. And when they say if you can explain it, it's not right, they're not saying because the Christian church is supposed to operate in confusion and chaos. God already said in another place, He's a God of order and decency. He's not an author of confusion. So they weren't referring to uh, chaos. They were saying that it was God's desire to so supernaturally through the Holy Spirit, so supernaturally empower the believer that what is happening among them when they come together and in their daily lives is so supernatural, it is not rational, it is not logical, it cannot be explained in scientific approaches. So if the Christian church, if it all adds up rationally, if it can all be explained logically, then something is wrong because that's not how God intended his people to live. Look at the early church. Jesus had been crucified. He's now raised from the dead. He spends 40 days in his resurrected body interacting with his disciples, instructing them with details about the kingdom of God. And he makes several statements in those 40 days to prepare those disciples for his departure, knowing that he was entrusting the greatest message in the world to these ill-equipped people, and he was giving them statements. Now, while this conversation is going on, they wanted to know if he was going to restore the kingdom right now. I mean, are you going to overthrow Rome and establish the kingdom right now? I mean, that wasn't important to them. Are you going to empower us to rule and reign right now? They had prophecy chart questions. He makes an interesting reply or a statement in response to their prophecy chart questions. He said, it is not for you to know the times and the seasons that the Father has kept in his own hand and his own mind. This conversation is going on in Acts 1. And I believe that statement is especially important for us in light of the recent false predictions of Christ's return in the media. It's not for us to figure out the prophecy charts and all of the issues because many of them are too difficult, if not impossible, for us to understand in our human reasoning. But in that Acts 1 conversation, he said, this is something you should focus on. It's said in Luke 24, 49 as well. He said, I'm going to send you... I'm going to send you what my Father has promised. But stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. Out of all of these statements, he says, wait in Jerusalem until I send the power. Wait till you receive the power. He's talking about the power of the Holy Spirit. He's saying he will come upon you. He will fill you. He will flow through you. And the supernatural will become a natural part of your life and ministry. And then you will be witnesses to Jerusalem and the whole earth if you will wait and receive that power. After what Jesus promised actually happened in Acts chapter 2, they waited and the Spirit came upon them. Peter leaves that prayer meeting where he has been empowered by the Spirit and he preaches the sermon that explains all that just went on and he invites people at the end of that sermon to come to Christ. 3,000 people out of that crowd came to Christ that day and subsequently those 3,000 people were filled with the same Spirit and empowered with the same power that the 120 were in the upper room. 
from that moment on throughout the book of Acts and throughout early church history, you really cannot explain exactly everything that happened. I mean, there were ill-equipped people without the resources that were seeing God do some pretty profound things and it is illogical, it is irrational, it is unexplainable except it was the fulfillment of what God would promise when people came to Him, He would fill them to do the supernatural. I mean, one of the examples the Apostle Peter. Up to this moment, in most areas of his life, he's been a failure as a disciple. He denied Christ. He was a coward. He denied the truth. And now he's filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. There's a boldness. He preaches the message he had once denied. And God does amazing things with him on that day in Acts 2 and throughout the pages of the book of Acts. And then there are men like Philip and Stephen who are referred to as deacons. And after they responded to the call of deacon, they were empowered by the Holy Spirit. And the scripture records incredible inhuman things that happen, unhuman things, supernatural things that happen in their lives because of their intimacy with the Holy Spirit. He was making Jesus more real to them after Jesus went away than Jesus was when he walked the earth with them. So you got these fishermen and tax collectors and political zealots. They had no seminary to go to. They had no formal training. And suddenly they're going here, there, and everywhere. The gospel is spreading. The church is growing exponentially. And there's no real explanation for it except that what Jesus promised would happen is happening. He said in Acts 1.8, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. He asked them before all of this happened to wait in Jerusalem. Now that's a problem. If you think about it, it's problematic. Jesus had just risen from the dead. They now knew for the first time that their Messiah, their Savior was alive. They could see Him with their very own eyes. And for the first time in their lives, they're really getting it. They're understanding. I mean, He talked to them in riddles before that He was going to tear down the temple and build it back in three days. They didn't get that. How's He going to tear down this stone and build it back? Now that He's dead, rose again, they, oh, He's talking about Himself. All of the pieces of the puzzle, all of the riddles are starting to come together. They're starting to understand for the first time that He died on that cross as a sacrifice for mankind. They're starting to understand that the blood that He shed on that cross is the covering of sin and forgiveness for all of humanity. They're starting to understand that Jesus was the fulfillment of the Passover lamb. They're getting this. This is really good news. Now because the tomb is empty, Jesus is alive. All of that has power and people's lives can genuinely transform. Now they know it's good news. Jesus saves. The whole world has to know. So you think they would go rent a stadium or they would go door to door and do something with this message. People of their day were blinded in their spiritual condition and dying in their sin, just like they are in our day and time. So the idea would be, bam, I got it. Revelation. The whole world has to know what I know. Let's go. But oddly, Jesus says, wait. Don't go anywhere. You know the message. But simply knowing the message is not enough. I want you to get that. Wait in Jerusalem until you are endued or clothed with power from on high. A supernatural power. Something that comes from heaven. Something that is beyond your capacity. Something that is beyond your IQ. Something that is beyond your talent is going to be given to you a power that comes from heaven. So the scripture says they waited 10 days to be exact. 
They prayed, they praised, they waited, and then suddenly, the word is used in Scripture in Acts 2, suddenly something came from heaven. I want you to take note of it. It came from heaven. The power, the gifting, by definition, was supernatural. It wasn't man-made. It wasn't drummed up on earth. It wasn't human creativity or ingenuity. It came from heaven. That's how they went into the world and turned the world upside down for Jesus. They were equipped with supernatural power from heaven. And all of this happening, turning the world right side up and miracles and signs and wonders and thousands coming to Christ and the church growing exponentially, all of this happened. They didn't have a model to look at. They were the first people. There were no books to read on how to. They were ill-equipped, unqualified, untrained people. It would have made more sense... If Jesus had picked 12 rabbis, I mean, at least the 12 rabbis would have had a real grasp of Scripture. If nothing else, they would have been proficient public speakers in order to tell the world about this message. But it appears that he intentionally avoided the naturally gifted. He intentionally avoided the naturally trained. He intentionally avoided the ones that were the most logical choices. And he picked the people who were weak in their own natural talent. Why? Why would God entrust the greatest story that has ever been told to the most ill-equipped band of people to ever tell it? The, the reason is because they would, those people, the weak, the ill-equipped, would have to depend on the promise that He made to them that you will receive power from heaven and you will accomplish nothing of, of significance apart uh, from the power that I am going to give you through the Holy Spirit. I believe their need is the same need of today. It's as if Jesus is saying the same thing to us. You have my message, but you need more. You're going to face such difficulty, such opposition, that maybe even persecution. And your spiritual enemy is going to come against you with such an array of spiritual weapons in this spiritual war that you're in that you need the promise of power to live through your life. You have my message in every translation you can imagine. You have access on the internet, the computer. Most of us have heard enough sermons that will last us a lifetime. We've got the message. But what he's saying is you need the power that goes along with the message. I don't know. Don't you think that's the greatest need for the church, ours or any other church today, is that we would be equipped by the power of God to live the life of Christ in this world. I think if any Christian or any pastor were to honestly look at it, I mean, we'd have to, I mean, do we really need any more translations of the Bible? Is that the reason we're not as effective? Or do we really need somebody to write more songs? Do we really need a better sound system? Or, or would it all just fall into place if we had better lights? Do we just need better lights, more technology, upgrade it all? Do we need to serve more juiced up coffee before the service? I mean, is that, is that the answer? Is that what the real need is? You see, the world is lying in darkness. It is getting more wicked by the day. People desperately need the love of Jesus. They desperately need the hope of the gospel. And they desperately need the power that can really change a life. None of those things I just mentioned are wrong. None of them are evil inherently in and of themselves. None of them. I mean, there's nothing wrong with representing the Lord with excellence in any of those areas or all of the ones that I just mentioned. But we could have 10,000 times more of those things in quantity. We could have 10,000 times more sound, 10,000 times more lights, 10,000 times more of any of that. And we could have 10,000 times greater advancement in all of those areas and still not possess 
possess the real power that actually changes a person's life. This is especially true for North Place Church. As we start talking about relocating and building a building, it would be easier for us to think that that is the answer. But our hope is not in bigger. Our hope is not in better. Our hope is not in newer. We need something from heaven. We don't need something we can craft, something that we can concoct, something that we can come up with. We need something from heaven. If we trust in those other things, all we're doing is rearranging the furniture, but we're not operating in the power that genuinely transforms people's lives we need something from heaven and Jesus promised that power he said it is available to us we can live naturally supernatural lives the question is are we living and walking in the blessing of that power in our churches and in our lives see when Jesus saved me as a young teenage kid The moment he saved me, he put in my heart this desire. It was almost like there was this calling in my heart to be different, to be set apart, to to, to seek the face of God that he would break into my world. So I started reading books about people that had led moves of God, uh, great awakenings and revivals. I read about George Whitfield and John and Charles Wesley. And I read about Smith Wigglesworth. And I, I read about Jonathan Edwards and the great awakening. And I used to take those history books about those men as a teenager. And I would weep till the pages were wet because I would cry out to God, I want to be one of those men. And as my heart began to turn towards pastoring, I started, oh God, I want to pastor one of those kinds of churches. The kind of church that Moody pastored. The kind of church that Tozer pastored, a church that is a wellspring of revival where the real power of heaven comes to earth and people's lives are genuinely transformed by the grace of God. And over the years, I've done everything I know to be that kind of man or pastor those kind of churches, but I, I seem to keep coming up short. I fasted 40 days at a time. I've read through the scriptures. I've got multiple degrees. I, I've done all that I know to do until I'm getting tired of going through the motions and trying to do it all. A few weeks ago, I was over here to the right. I actually tell you where I was standing uh, in the altar. Our staff had a prayer time together, and the building was empty except for us, and we were all in the sanctuary praying. I was standing right over there, and I was asking God to do all of this stuff that had been in my heart since a teenager and telling Him, God, I don't know what else to do. And it was more apparent to me at that moment than it had ever been in my life that I can't do anything, that, that nothing I'm going to do is good enough, that it's going to have to be from God. And you know, I know all of that all of my life but it was almost like what I knew became a revelation in my heart and it was a moment where I confessed to God for the first time God I can't do this I can't preach good enough I can't learn enough I can't work hard enough I can't study enough for this to happen I can't I can't pray or work the supernatural in it's going to have to be something you're going to have to do and so in a moment of brokenness I just threw my hands in the air and said God I give up God I can't do this and it was almost like the Holy Spirit said why did it take you 20 years to do that I've been waiting on you to throw your hands in the air and give up you see all my life I've been praying in, in real humility God help me God help me help me help me do all these things help me. And, and, and it was almost like God said no, no I, I'm not going to when you pray help me it sounds like humility but what you're asking me to do is hit my wagon to your train and I'm not going to help you do anything I'm going to do it through you or I'm not going to do it at all so I quit praying God help me and 
and I started praying, God, just do it. I'm a dead man walking. Just live through me. Because, man, if the Holy Spirit comes to exalt Christ, how much better am I ever going to worship than when the Spirit worships through me? If the Holy Spirit knows how to pray what the mind of God is, how much better am I going to pray than when the Spirit prays through me? Who better to preach this morning than the author of the book himself, the Holy Spirit, and tell him, I'm a dead man walking. Holy Spirit, preach through me today. Exalt Jesus through me today. Quit trying to live out of my own effort, my own ingenuity, my own self-righteousness and just throw my hands in the air and say, I can't. And the moment I come to that place of brokenness and dependency is the moment God starts living the supernatural life through every one of us. But we have to come to the I can't, you can moment. I can't live a holy life. I can't love my kids right. I can't love my wife. I don't know how to lead this church. And it's not until I realize I don't have it. I can't learn it. I can't get it. It's not until I come to that point of utter dependency that God is able to say, okay, now you're ready for the supernatural power of the Spirit to live through you like you read in the book of Acts. They were ill-equipped, untrained, but because of that, they had to be dependent. And you say, but pastor... You know, I'll never walk in that kind of New Testament power because I don't know as much about the Bible as you do or I don't have any theological degrees. And and let me tell you, you're probably a better candidate than I am because my natural skill set and my learning competes with the flow of the Spirit in my life because human nature is, if I can do it myself, I'm going to do it. That's exactly the way the human nature works. I've got to let self die enough that God can work through me. Now, let me say this. The error of previous generations of people who believed in spiritual power, their generation was, well, if we can get dependent on education, we don't need any. And they used it as an excuse to stay uneducated. And though they said, we don't need all of the advancements in technology and we don't need anything to help us present the gospel with the Spirit because if we get those things, we're going to become dependent on those. And so you had a whole generation that despised education, that represented the Lord without excellence because they thought all of that would get in the way. Their fear was founded because it can get in the way. And what they had right is we must totally remain dependent on God. But where I find myself asking the question is, what if somehow I can die to myself, be a walking dead man, and God can use the education, and God can use the technology, and let it be knowledge on fire, technology on fire, and He can live supernaturally through us that we can reach the generation that we live in, not because we're good enough, but because His Spirit has enabled us. Jesus made the promise of power to His disciples through the Holy Spirit. The Greek word for power is dunamis. It's where you get the word dynamite. And it literally means, dunamis literally means ability, might, efficiency, not coming from human ability and talents, but something God does through His people. When the church is not working in that power or flowing in the power of the Holy Spirit, things get barren quick. When you look at the church through history, you see ebbs and flows where moments when they were very keen to the move of the Holy Spirit and what God was doing. And then there are moments when it's as if the the, the Spirit of God wasn't even acknowledged. There were high periods where the church was operating in the Spirit's power and low periods where the church seemed to be spiritually barren. It's almost as if the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit were non-existent in those seasons of the church. But then something would happen in these low times. There would be faithful souls, sincere people who would say, I can't take it like this any longer. We're giving out the message of hope. But there's no impact. There's no power. 
We're doing everything we know to do, but people are getting further from God despite our best efforts. It's as if the church is in a spiritual slumber, lulled to sleep in the lap of Delilah. People aren't hungering for God. Our lives are prayerless. And in those moments when it was like that in the church, somebody would say, I'm tired of this. What we need is a revival. And if if revival is not a familiar term throughout history... There are wonderful things in in history in regard to revival, spiritual revivals that date all the way back to when the original disciples carried the message of Jesus to the nations and it started a New Testament revival. And I would tell you it goes, it predates that. You go all the way back to the Old Testament when God's people were away from him and the spirit of of God began to tug at them and they got tired of slavery, they got tired of bondage, they got tired of their idols, they would call upon God and God would hear their prayer, their prayer, an entire nation nations would come broken before God and there would be a spiritual awakening. So what is revival? It's when people get tired of the status quo. It's when people get tired of what is. They read the word of God. They see what God has promised and their spirit says, no, I am not going to settle for status quo. God has something better for us than mundane existence and an impotent, powerless life. And when that happens, people begin to pray. And they pray things like, Oh God, would you rend the heavens and come down? We humble ourselves. We confess our pride. We confess our sin. The things that have obstructed your flow of power and grace in our life. God, would you come and walk among us? Would you come and live through us? We submit our lives to your will. We want to see your name glorified on earth. And it's not being glorified the way it should. Life is not what you plan for it to be. In my local church or in my own life or in my family. It is a fact that that kind of humbling, that kind of broken prayer, that kind of confession of sin and dependence on God has preceded every kind of spiritual awakening throughout history. And it's to this kind of broken, repentant people that God decides to send supernatural power from heaven to live among them. Let me offer a warning before we leave this morning. To those of us that have been in this for a while, that have heard the word revival all of our life, the danger is this. The minute you hear the word revival, your mind immediately jumps to scenes in your past that have been defined as revival and it creates a preconceived box that God has to move in in order for it to be real revival. There is a tinge of pride in all of us. And the danger of talking about revival for those of us who have a history with revival is instead of praying for what God wants to do, we start praying for God to repeat what we saw Him do in the past or what we were experiencing when God moved at some other point in our past. So if they would just sing that song again, God would come. If they would just do it that way again, God would come. Or if they would just go to this place, or they would just have so-and-so preach, or if they would just read this book, that's how revival is going to come. We place conditions on God and we assume that if God is going to move here today, it's going to look like it did in the 1940s or in the Jesus movement of the 60s and 70s or most recently the Brownsville revival of 1995. If it's going to be a real move of God, it's going to be what we know, what we have been accustomed to and in the same environment what it was like when God touched us. 
The danger in that is that we are placing the same conditions on God, if it has to be like it was somewhere else, that the Jews placed upon God when they were waiting on their Messiah. They had all of these preconceived ideas about what the Messiah was going to be. When Jesus showed up, he didn't fit their criteria. The whole Jewish nation missed the Messiah. He lived among them. He did miracles among them. He raised the dead. But because that wasn't what they wanted or what they thought, God was working revival among them and they missed it. So can I beg you? Can I beg us as a church? Can we give God a blank canvas? Can we give him a a, a canvas that is free of our cultural expectations, of our background, of our denominational expectations, and just say, God, here my life is a blank canvas. Here my church is a blank canvas. Would you come and paint on it? Would you come do what you want to do, free from the lines of our personal wants, and you come do something new in our day that is going to transform our lives and change the world that you you have called us to serve? Let me uh, read you a verse that is going to sound like it's from another planet, but it's the Word of God. 1 Corinthians 12, 7 says, Now to each one the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. To each one in the church, not just the pastor, the clergy, or the paid staff, but every member of the body of Christ. To each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit. So what does that mean? manifestation of the Spirit. It means the Spirit of God is living inside every believer and He wants to manifest Himself to glorify Christ and enable us to serve others by leading them to Christ or by helping them grow as a Christian to each person. We are to be expecting the Spirit of God to manifest in us according to Scripture for the common good. Not fanaticism, not wild excesses, that we often see linked to the name of the Holy Spirit, but something that is practical, the common good, something that builds up the common good. Since the church is a spiritual organism, it can only be built up by the spiritual manifestation and gifting of the Holy Spirit. The Old Testament prophet has already told us, it is not by might nor by power, but by the Spirit says the Lord. So how many of us as believers are actually believing God for the Holy Spirit to supernaturally manifest Himself in us so that we can glorify Christ and serve the world we live in with power. I mean, how many of us are actually believing that? That to all is given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. I mean, is your day, is your life, is your ministry, is your marriage, is it driven by that reality? The Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is living on the inside of me and He is looking for opportunities to manifest Himself in my life with power so that Jesus will be glorified and people will come to Christ. How many of us regularly say, Holy Spirit, I know you're inside of me. Now manifest Christ through me to live a holy life, to represent Jesus, to love the way I'm supposed to love. I can't, God, but you can. I can't beat addiction. I can't beat sin. I can't love my wife the way she needs to be. I can't love my kids the way she needs to be. I don't have the the ability to manage through this troubled water of this business climate. Whatever it may be, Holy Spirit, you live in me manifest Christ in me. I can't do this, but you can. Come live through me. Let me be a dead man walking. Pray through me. Praise through me. Love through me. Lead through me in supernatural power. Isn't it time for us to do some soul searching and say and ask, 
Is my life characterized by the power of God being manifested in me so the world knows that God is not dead, but He is alive? That can only happen by the power of the Spirit of God working in us. Maybe, maybe it didn't bother you. But I don't want my kids having to go to the history section of some library somewhere to read about what God used to do in some other day and time. I want my kids to know the power of God. I want to walk in the Spirit to such a degree that when they're sick, I can lay hands upon them and the Spirit of Christ manifest Himself in their life and they know the healing power of God. So much so that when they go to school to declare Christ to their school, they, not, they may not be the best at debate and apologetics, but there is a power that flows through their life that what happens in church and at home can happen in algebra class because they know they've been sent with the same power that He's sending us. It's time for us to understand that. Isn't it time for pastors and leaders, starting with me, to humble ourselves and say, God, you've got to have something better for us than where we're wallowing right now. We've relied too much on human resources. Walk among us. Live through us. Forgive us for self-righteous, self-reliance. You think God would turn away from that kind of prayer? I mean, he's not going to say, you know, you're my people. You want more of me so my name can be glorified in the earth so that you can effectively love people in my name. But, you know, I just don't think I'm going to listen to that prayer. It's impossible that he would turn a deaf ear to that kind of broken prayer. If we can humble ourselves, truly confess I can't, God. I'm not going to pray, help me do this, because I can't do this. I'm going to pray, you do this through me. Confess our lack of ability to do the job. Call upon Him. The Holy Spirit will make Jesus real in all kinds of situations where we live. Pastor Bear, I want you to come, if you will. Prepare our hearts this morning. Tonight going to be a little worship, a little teaching, and a whole lot of praying. A whole lot of seeking after God. My heart is burdened. I'm not against all the other things. I'm still pursuing education. I believe in education. But if my heart doesn't stay right, it's just one more battle in me that, the, that blocks. It's an obstacle for the life of the Spirit to flow through me. If I get my heart right, it becomes a tool in the hand of God. But for you, it's something else. I don't think any of us, to be honest, are living with all that is available to us in Christ. And the Holy Spirit came to make Jesus more real to us than He's ever been before. You know what? I, I unapologetically tell you, there's something we call theologically the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's a subsequent experience after salvation where there is an endowment for power for service. I've experienced that. And with that power, I can take you to the point where, I mean, the, the, uh, the power of God consumed my life. And, and I, uh, you know, a part of that experience for me was a prayer language. And I pray in that prayer language. And it is a great gift in my arsenal of spiritual warfare to be able to let the Holy Spirit pray through me what the mind of God is. And I'll talk more about that tonight. But with all of that, my heart is still hungry. There is still a, an understanding that what I read on the pages of Smith Wigglesworth's diary, I hadn't seen those things in my life yet. 
I've seen, the, I've seen deaf people here. I've had the privilege of laying hands on the deaf and them, their ears be opened in India. Um, I've seen some amazing miracles, but they're too far and in between. They're too sporadic. And I really, I'm not even interested as much in the miracles as I am. I, I weep. <laughs> we went to three services to create more seats. And, and those seats are supposed to be occupied by people who don't know Christ. The greatest revival to me in all the world is some sinner coming, some drunk coming to Jesus. That's what this is all about. And when I weep in my private time and I pray for revival, that's what I envision. I envision the building full of addicts and, and families and people who are finding Christ. I don't know, the Holy Spirit's just tapping me on the shoulder and saying, the more you can get this I can't thing, the more I can. The more you're willing to acknowledge, I'm not here to hook my wagon to your train, that I'm not here to help you. You're here to be a walking dead man and let me live through you. The more I get that, the more opportunity there is for those things to happen. And what could happen exponentially? Wherever you leave, when you leave this place, if we all started walking in that humility, I believe it's going to happen tonight. We're going to break our hearts before the Lord and He's going to come and feel that. But I just believe this morning there are some of you that are feeling that same. You just can't get out of this room today until you do some business with God. I, I just feel that and I know the time has come and gone and we're about to leave. But I cannot, in my own heart, there's some of you feeling what I'm feeling. You have a burden to pray for this church. You have a burden to pray for, for this nation. You have a burden to pray for revival. But let me warn you. Don't project upon God what you expect that to look like. Don't put your personal pride and prejudices and desires and philosophies, don't start painting the canvas for Him. Just say, you're God, you do it, I'm just available. Flow through me, Holy Spirit. If that's the case, in a moment when we stand, these altars are going to be open for, for people to come and pray for more of God to come and seek the face of God for revival, to come and pray for release of the supernatural in our lives. And I'm going to ask the prayer team to be patient with me this morning because by the nature of this time, I'm just going to ask, because some of you may want to respond to the altar, and, and, uh, but also for those that do respond today, just prayer team, just be prayerful and let the Holy Spirit guide you. If he, if he leads you to somebody, then go pray with him. If not, just let him seek the face of God alone. I want to bless you this morning, but I want to pray a different blessing than I normally pray. I normally pray, Lord, bless them and keep them. Make your face shine down. I, I want to pray a different prayer. So would you stand and let me pray that prayer over you? I really believe I can pray this with integrity. It's Paul's prayer as the pastor of the church at Ephesus. It's my prayer for you today. It's my blessing over you. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, for whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people 
to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, for some of you that sense, you just feel the tap of the Holy Spirit that you got to do business with me. You feel the burden that I'm conveying this morning. You feel it with me and you just can't leave. I, I understand. And I just want to, I want to make room. Time has come and gone, but I want to make room for you to just pray. Just meet with God. Just hunger after God. Just wait upon God. If that's the case, I want you to come. And I just want you to kneel around the front of this church or stand. If you just feel the Holy Spirit saying, I want you to go down there and I want there to be less of you and more of me. Maybe it's corporate. Maybe it's for this church. Maybe it's for you. I I don't know. But I just sense that the Holy Spirit's tugging on your heartstrings. Pastor Bear is going to keep the environment worshipful. The altars are going to stay open. There'll be no formal benediction. We'll meet back here again at 7 o'clock tonight to continue what he's doing right now. But if you sense the tug of the Holy Spirit, don't hurry out of this place. Make room.